everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. It's Brian Bowling. With me, as always, is Brandon Odo. Hello. And today we're going to do another one of our lightning round episodes. And this time we're going to talk about airway management. It's a pretty big part of the management of critical care patients. So we're going to talk about how to manage airways, how we do it, different tips and tricks and different things around this. And that's not always intubation, uh, but that's a big part of it. So Brandon, let me start off just asking you, who's responsible for airway management where you are? Because I know this varies from place to place. Yeah, that's what I found. It's very uh, cultural, and that means both between institutions and um, I think between regions there tend to be certain practices that are are common. Um, Certainly, you know, any critical care service um, should have the ability to sort of manage airways, oxygenate and ventilate patients, put tubes in, things like that. Um, However, some places I think they do that routinely, kind of primarily, unless there's some unusual situation, much like I think in the majority of places the emergency department does. Um, and maybe they'll call anesthesia, who is generally kind of considered the gold standard for airway management as a backup or if they need help with something. Um, and then in some places, they really will use anesthesia almost always, um, almost the other way around. If there's maybe some emergency where they're not available or you can't wait for them, then maybe they'll deal with it themselves. And that's most places I've worked. Um where there just hasn't really been a big culture of, of managing your own airways. And that by that, I mean by the intensivists or the APPs or whoever's staffing the ICUs. Um, I've mostly worked in the East Coast, kind of um, mid-Atlantic, Northeast, those kind of regions. Um, I think you're the other way, right? You guys tend to deal with your own airways. Yeah, yes and no. So we do in our ICU. And, and I think in all of our ICUs. So we have three different ICU services, really, in the hospital. I guess four, uh, if you want to count. Um, like cardiology has a CCU, but they um, they're, they're sort of they do some critical care management, but they don't typically do their own intubations. Um, we have the pulmonary MICU team, who does all of theirs. We have the trauma surgery team who mainly handles trauma and uh, sort of acute care emergencies, general surgery type stuff. And they typically do theirs. Um, And then we have the anesthesia critical care team, which is the one I work for. And we manage the neuro ICU, the cardiac ICU, cardiothoracic surgery ICU, I should say, and uh, the sort of non-trauma surgical ICU. Uh, And we do all of ours. Now, housewide for codes, the emergency department handles that. So, an emergency medicine resident responds to every code in the That's hospital for airway. You work in quite yeah. a large hospital. Yeah. Um, so, what what I find frequently happens is if the code is called in one of our ICUs, the ER guys will grab their stuff and run up to the ICU only, only to get there and find that either the patient's already intubated. Or there's, you know, one of us, whether it's one of us, meaning the anesthesia ICU team or the MICU team or whoever, uh, at the head of the bed ready to intubate. Um, but yeah, and so I, that's, 
that is unique as far as I know. I've never I've never known a place like that that does that, and I assume that that's to give the ER residents more experience with emergent airway intubation. It must be. I mean, I've heard of quite small hospitals where the ER tends to deal with all the airways, but that's like because they're the only like doctor in house. Right. Now, I was going to say when I worked in a small community hospital years ago, that's how it was. But but that was for that reason, like you just said. Because at night, the ER doc was the only physician in-house, or there might be a a hospitalist in-house who was not credentialed to intubate, so the ER doctor did that. But but yeah, this is the first time I've ever encountered that in such a big institution. Now, we do have another mechanism for this uh, where I work. It's called anesthesia stat. And you can call anesthesia stat, and literally anesthesiologists fall from the ceiling. I mean, every every anesthesiologist in the building who's not doing anything will come running. Um, this is typically going to be in the OR PACU areas, uh, and it's usually where there's already an anesthesiologist present and they're having trouble. So if you hear anesthesia stat, you know somebody's in the weeds because this is probably someone who's already an experienced airway person having trouble. Um, but yeah, so typically ER goes to codes, ICU manages their, their own stuff. Um, and it is nice that the ER guys come to the codes in the ICU because we're not always physically in the ICU. And, you know, there's always the off chance that I, I cover patients in multiple ICUs, uh, that I'll be upstairs in the thoracic surgery ICU and there's a code in the neuro ICU, uh, and the ER guys can get there before I can. So that's always nice. Um, but yeah, we tend to manage our own. Yeah. And I mean, this, this starts to get at some, I think, very interesting questions, including things like culture and also um, of time and how practices shift and things become more specialized. Uh, I, uh, hopefully all viewers are fans of uh, the show Scrubs, which of course is the greatest medical show of all time. Absolutely. And uh, I I remember on that show, uh, the residents who it's about are all internal medicine residents and they would innovate their own patients. Um, There was a whole episode about how one of them was having a hard time with it. Um, and of course it's a TV show, but I mean, it, but there's back in the day, this is what people did. And now, you know, fewer and for, fewer people. So th- like, I think some of the, like, just to, you know, put it all on the table. Some people will probably listen to this and say, um, this is a, a PA and an NP. Should they be like intubating people? Um, which is a fair question. Um, but again, I think it, it highlights some other questions. So let me, let me put some like, uh, dictums on the table and you tell me if you agree with them. Um, number one. Uh, airway management and specifically intubation of critically ill patients, these are not like planned OR cases, these are sick people, is probably one of the highest risk procedures we might ever do at the bedside. I would agree with that, yes. Yeah, and I think the evidence supports that and everyone would would support that. And, you know, the worse you do, the more attempts it takes, and if they get more hypoxic and things, clearly that's associated with poor outcomes. So, you know, it it matters. Um, Dictum two. Um, we are unlikely to be the highest trained person to do this procedure in a well-resourced hospital. Yes, I would agree with that too. Right. Because again, anesthesia by and large will be available unless there's a specific time when they're not or something. Um, uh, and they're by and large better at this. This is like what they do all day long. Um, and then like, I guess dictum three is, um, Anyone who is managing critically ill patients, you know, primarily such as you and I, should have some capacity 
to address their airway. And that doesn't mean necessarily intubating them, but if a patient is like in respiratory failure, you shouldn't just be staring at them going, I hope somebody comes and helps them. You know, you should have something you can do about it. Right. So uh, let, me, let me back up to the who does things for a second. So I did one time work at a community hospital where all of the intubations in-house were handled by respiratory therapists. So if there's people out there saying PAs and NPs aren't qualified for this, uh, I don't know. I don't know how to react to that because, um, you know, in that place, I literally would sit there and watch an attending physician stand there and look at the patient waiting for the respiratory therapist to get there to intubate because they weren't comfortable doing it. Uh, because they hadn't done it in years, you know. So yeah, these which, guys are you know, private it's, practice. It's about and, who's doing it yeah. versus not. It's not really about your right. title or anything. So else. I will also say this: that where where I am, UK, um, we have it's a hospital policy that you have to have an attending, and I believe it's actually an attending with intubation privileges. So not just any attending, uh, but you have to have an attending present for an intubation, unless it's a code situation. So when I intubate somebody electively or quasi-electively in the ICU, my attending is in the room. So you might say, well, why don't the attendings just do all the intubations? And I think that's a fair question. I don't really know what the official rationale for that is, other than um, obviously we're a teaching hospital, so residents and fellows need experience so that they one day can be attendings. Uh, but So why allow PAs and NPs to intubate at all? I don't know the official rationale, but what my thought would be is there are times in emergency situations in codes where you may need to intubate that patient because there may not be an attending present. So the more times you do it under supervision, the more experienced you are and the better you are at it. Right. Yeah, I would uh, agree with that reasoning. Uh, but And of course, it gets more complicated. There are potentially times when you might have more airway experience than them, depending on what you do. Um, and I mean, I, I, I think if agreeing on the things we agreed about, I think everyone would agree that you should have some ability to do something. And that may be placing like a, an LMA or something or sure. being good at mask ventilating or whatever. Um, and then beyond that, you could argue that in the interest of patient safety, the person do, doing something like innovating should always be, let's say anesthesia. Um, but that's sort of a good argument on paper that doesn't work always in the real world because it's not always the case that the most trained, experienced person should do everything. That That's just not really practical. There's always probably someone who's better at something. You just have to pick a threshold for what is, is good enough um, with other factors in mind. So like, sh- you know, should anesthesia go to the ER and intubate everyone there? I know that anesthesia in the ER people will argue about that. But I think we all agree that by and large, a, like a board certified emergency medicine physician is, you know, competent to manage an airway, for instance. Um, so you say, you say they're above whatever that cutoff is. And then do we also say that critical care personnel, you know, at large are competent for that? And I think that's where you, it depends on where you are. Maybe your culture says, we, we don't, we don't accept that like level of a risk. We, we, if you did that, we'd be like, how come we didn't call anesthesia? They're better at it. And other places are like, no, we, we think you fall over that line. Like just as a group, we think that we ought to be doing this. There's no reason to bother anesthesia for every single routine airway. Of course, they're available 
or something as complicated, but uh, that's like too much of a burden on them. And yeah, it degrades our skills for those times, which will happen when you do have to do it yourself. So I don't think there's like a right answer for this, um, but I think that's the like that's the that's the debate, and there's not there's not really an easy answer. And I especially think that if people think there is an easy answer, it's because they have not been in enough different settings that do it a different way. Yeah, exactly. And you know, you you bring up a really good point that I'm sure we will get pushback and maybe even emails about is when you said you just have to be good enough. Right, because this has been my argument to a lot of people who say uh, PAs and NPs should not be practicing in the ICU period because they're not as well trained as physicians. And I think the, you can make the argument that you don't have to be perfect; you just have to be adequate to the to the task at hand. Um, and I think there, you know, I get pushback on that from people who say, "Well, do you want your provider to be just good enough?" And my answer is, "Yeah, I do." Uh, you know, and I'll give you an example. We had, I worked with a surgeon one time at a place who was used to having anesthesia available for intubations whenever he, he needed them. Um, and he got really mad that that wasn't the case. And so he went to the director of nursing for the ICU and said, I want to hire a handful of CRNAs to be available in the ICU to practice and help manage these critically ill patients because they will be experts at airway management. And so she goes and talks to one of the CRNAs and the CRNA says, well, frankly, that's a horrible idea. I'm I'm not at all qualified to manage an ICU patient. That's not what I do. I do anesthesia. Now I can do intubation and sure, I'm probably better at airway management than any of the NPs and PAs and probably even a lot of the you know, physicians in the ICU, but you're going to end up with a guy who you're paying way too much money to sit around and wait to intubate people because I'm frankly (laughs) overqualified at that point. Right. And I'm not qualified to do the other things. So at some point I think you do need to say, well, we need someone who can do X, Y, and Z. And so like you said, the emergency medicine physicians, right. Anesthesiologists are not emergency medicine physicians any more than an emergency medicine physician is an anesthesiologist. So we, you need somebody who can do the bulk of the job and do all the tasks to an adequate degree. Yeah, that exactly. I mean, it, there is always a spectrum. If I take everyone who's staffing the ICU at any given time or say everyone totally in the department, every resident, every fellow, every person in the hospital, and I line them all up with for any given skill, you know, we could theoretically rank them by competence. Like, like ordering a, you know, a column in Excel or something from top to bottom. And then you say, oh, a different skill, and then we'll reorder them. There's always a gradient. Exactly. Um, but that, that, like, what, what is the argument here? That there should be no gradient? Everyone should be – but, I mean, that's not going to happen. Right. I mean, if I'm in one room placing a line or something, and down the hall there's like an intern supervised by a resident placing another line – I mean, I've done an awful lot of these. They've probably done too. I'm probably better at it. Does that mean that they should not do it? That's not really realistic. There's there's training issues. There's staffing issues. Like, you know, one person can't do everything. Um, the way that we kind of get by all this is by having sort of, you know, hierarchies where people more experienced people are available and less experienced people just need to have the competence to know when they need help and, you know, various other safeguards. But that's just kind of how things work. And I think that's ultimately the airway thing. And to bring it Full circle, I think that's where, you know, you or I, someone like an APP, say intubating somebody, 
um, comes in. It's the same issue, just focused all the way down. Why we why do we do it and not the intensivist? Or why would the intensivist do it and not an anesthesiologist and so on up the line? Right. It's this is all the same issues. And of course, it still depends on your level of training, your experience, the situation, and so on. And a lot of it comes down to being able to know what is a difficult situation, you know, when you need help, and of course, making everyone happy and fitting into your culture. Right. And I think that's the key, not the making your everybody happy part, but knowing your limitations, right? Knowing when you're in over your head, and even more than that, knowing when you are going to be in over your head, right? So preemptively, before you put a patient to sleep, knowing, is this an airway that I feel comfortable managing? Do I have appropriate resources to help me if I have trouble? And being honest with yourself and saying, you know, this is, this one's really, this guy looks really tough. I think I need to get somebody more experienced in here. Um, Right. Because asking for help is always one of our core skills. And again, not not just us, but everybody, but more than maybe any other situation, you know, the moment before you perhaps sedate and paralyze somebody and try to, you know, take over one of their core functions of physiology, which maybe is already struggling, is probably, you know, right at the top of that list of uh, moments that you don't want to forge into without really having established that. A lot of other things you can kind of figure out as you go and and it's on a longer timeline, but this is something that can go bad over the course of a few minutes. So Yeah. And I have to say, that's one of the things that I think I have learned from working with anesthesiologists the most is having a plan B, a plan C, a plan D, a plan E. You know, I mean, those guys in their training, and, and not that other specialties don't, but anesthesia especially in their training, they have it just hammered into them that they need to have a backup plan for their backup plan for their backup plan for what if any possible thing goes wrong. So when they approach a situation, they already have, you know, three other options in their back pocket. Um, and so I think that's what I've learned from them. That's been the most helpful. Definitely. Um, so let's talk about the nuts and bolts of airway management here real quick. Um, first of all, let's talk about when to intubate someone. What, what's your threshold for when a person needs an artificial airway? Oh, good. Good question. Um, uh, Jeff Guy on his podcast used to like to say that airway is not a, a noun, like a piece of plastic. It's a, a verb. You know, it's an activity. There's a lot of ways you can achieve it. The, uh, but obviously, in most cases, our sort of definitive airway is an endotracheal tube. A lot of other things are treated as temporizing, unless, you know, non-invasive things that you might be able to do for a while. But people will teach, you know, things like hypoxia, you know, hypercarbic failure, um, you know, protecting the airway for something anatomic or a planned clinical course, things like that. But the I think the vast majority of uh, people who get end up intubated is basically because they they don't look good. <laughs> Meaning, from the doorway, they have a, an appearance of labor and distress, and um, really the same reason we do a lot of things. They have kind of a gestalt appearance of, of, of being poor. It's not because you say are staring at their oxygen saturation and it's gone from ninety to eighty eight or something. That occasionally that happens, but usually I think they just look sick. Yeah, I think I would agree with that, right? There's a lot of that, you know, just understand. And this is why I think it takes experience not just to do the procedure, but to understand when to do the procedure, because so much of it is based on this clinical gestalt that only comes with seeing lots and lots of people who need to get intubated. 
Yeah. And the, the subtext of that is, of course, um, you're better off doing it before you absolutely must, um, not only because that's good critical care in general, but because the pa- patient who's really an extremist is higher risk to innovate. Someone who's already, let's say, quite hypoxic or very hypercarbic, that period of, of apnea and trying to get an airway in and stuff uh, can become quite high risk. They're already slipping off their oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve or they're already very acidotic or whatever. Absolutely. And I think you have to balance all these things, you know, in your head. Uh, I like, I heard the phrase recently, resuscitate before you intubate. Meaning if you have a patient who is in shock, who needs an airway, do what you can to resuscitate their shock before you intubate them. Because, you know, when you paralyze them, when you sedate them, you're going to cause hemodynamic compromise, right? It's just, it's unavoidable. That's what those drugs do. Um, Have a plan to deal with that, certainly. But if you can resuscitate the patient before you get to that point, great. But even that is is this balance, right? You have to understand, do I have the time? Do I have the luxury of doing some resuscitation first? Because maybe their airway is in such a tenuous position that you don't. You just have to get get them intubated. Right. The whole idea of like ABCs, where that's the order you do yeah. things, I think it's been kind of harmful. Like there are a lot of patients where A is not the most important thing. You Yes, you have to do something with it at some point, but it, it, it's like time-wise, it's not your first priority. And then occasionally there is a patient where that is the first thing. I think, you know, you got to jumble up those letters based on the patient. Yeah. And and there's too many, uh, t- too many times where we try to algorithm and come up with cutesy little phrases, um, you know, like GCS less than eight intubate. I mean, it great. It rhymes, but, uh, you know, if, if no one's told you this in your life yet, just because something rhymes doesn't mean it's true. You know, there's plenty of times when these little truisms are helpful, but there's plenty of times that they're not too. Definitely. Um, okay. So we've got a patient who's having some issues, um, from a respiratory standpoint, either oxygenation or ventilation, right? Because I think sometimes we overlook that um, ventilatory failure is just as, if not more important than uh, oxygenation failure. And we feel like they need to do something. We've exhausted non-invasive. So we've done BiPAP. We've done high-flow nasal cannula. And, uh, you know, we can certainly take another episode and talk about non-invasive ventilation at some point. But Let's say we've moved past all that and we're ready to proceed to some sort of invasive mechanical ventilation. Now, you mentioned earlier, so the the superglottic airways, like the LMA. Do you guys use a lot of superglottic airways? We don't. Um, I think it is perhaps one of the first things people might reach for as a backup. And um, certainly they use them in the OR a lot for you know conscious sedation things. But um, they're used more in the field in the EMS world. And I think a lot of the kind of growing respect for them comes from that setting. Things like King Airways, um, uh, there's the LMA, which is more used perhaps in the hospital, but sometimes seen out there, a wide variety of LMA adjacent types of things. Um, but I mean, the idea for all of them is that they're easy to put in because you don't have to really visualize the airway, you just cram it in there. Um, they may not really quote, protect the airway as robustly. Of course, even an ET tube doesn't 100% protect an airway, but you have a cuff sealed against the trachea, so much more so. But they provide you a a reasonably good way to oxygenate and ventilate a patient. To me, the way to view them is as a replacement for, you know, bag mask ventilation, which despite what, like, you know, 
the CPR courses tell you, it's really a pretty difficult thing to do for any amount of time and to do it safely. Um, and these provide a much easier way to do that. But generally, we'll try to transition from them to an ET tube at some point. Yeah, I think I think LMAs are particularly handy just to have around. We have a in all of our ICUs, and in fact, on all the code carts in the hospital. So even on the floor, there's a we have an airway bag that's blue, and that contains all the ET tubes, the laryngoscopes, etc. And then we have a red difficult airway bag, and that has LMAs, and that has bougies, and that has you know all these extra little you know gadgets and gizmos that you can do for difficult airways. And so I think it's good to have an LMA around because I think they're particularly good in a rescue situation, like a code. You know, if you have a patient that's coding and you are not able to get them intubated for whatever reason, uh, intubating someone while someone's doing chest compressions is exceptionally difficult if you've never done it. Uh, it's, it's very hard. And so sometimes yeah. it's easy just to sh- shove an LMA in there and you get a little bit because it is easier to ventilate someone with an LMA than to bag mask them, uh, especially during CPR, um, even though it's not a definitive airway. So I think they have a role in that place. But like you said, in the ICU, we're typically looking at more long-term solutions. And so even if that LMA gets placed, it's going to have to get exchanged for an ET tube at some point. Yeah. I mean, it can be a rescue if you try to get the tube and you can't or something, but I think probably more than anything in our setting, turning back to like the skill issue, maybe you are someone, whatever you're training, who's in the ICU with sick patients and you don't feel that you can comfortably innovate someone. Probably the thing to do would be to have competency with LMAs. So if your patient is crashing and needs something, you can just stick in an LMA. And I mean, that should cover them for any reasonable amount of time until, you know, an anesthesiologist can drive in from Timbuktu or whatever, you know, compared to the idea of you just standing there and and bagging them the whole time, which I mean, that would be your probably your plan otherwise, but that's I think a lot less tenable. But I mean, in except in the rare case of someone who's got, you know, something that's going to obstruct their airway or something that you need to bypass, an LMA will, will do you fine for that. And it's a much more acquirable skill. It's not a without skill. So if you shouldn't think, oh, that's my plan. Uh, the first time I ever touch one will be on that day. Right. You do need some experience with it. And I think we shouldn't kind of neglect that. Um, but that's, a, I think, a very reasonable plan for that person in that situation. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And that, and you're right. Like if you've got somebody, if you're in a situation um, where your airway management person is not necessarily readily available, then that is a good plan, right? To, to put in an LMA and then you have time for, like you said, the anesthesiologist to, to come in from home in the middle of the night or whatever. Yeah. When we had a lot of COVID patients um, and we were proning a lot of them, and a lot of them were paralyzed on a ton of PEEP, already hypoxic, I would uh, I would tell the nursing staff and people doing it, like, listen, you know, if you'd like flip this guy over and he's deeply paralyzed and you, like you trip on the tube and yank it out or something like this is going to be a real bad day. Like maybe keep an LMA here and then you <laughs> could stick that in without too much trouble and then probably be able to temporize them until you can reposition them, get someone to innovate them and so on. Yeah, exactly. Um, so let's talk about what I think is probably one of the most underrated airway management skills, and that is effective bag mask ventilation. This is kind of the ultimate skill in the sense that in theory, if you could do that, you don't need anything else. Of course you do because it doesn't really 
manage the airway and you can't uh, stay in there all day, but you can oxygenate and ventilate people, which is what you need in the short term. And whatever your other skill is going to be, whether it's innovation or something else, this is always the fallback. This is the like the bottom rung. This is how you're going to temporize them until you do that in between attempts and so on. So if you can't mask ventilate someone, um, you're really going to be in trouble no matter what else you can do. Whereas if you can, you by and large, okay. Like you can at least do that. It's like being able to, uh, what is it you teach you when you're teaching a kid to swim, like, like Bob or float or something, right, at least you're yeah. not going to drown. Right. And ideally you'll be able to do the breaststroke or whatever, but at least you're not going to drown. And on the flip side, it's not that easy. I mean, the one handed mask ventilation is really something you, you need to get a good amount of practice on. And this thing where we teach it for like one second in like CPR courses or something. And people are like, Oh good. But like, you know, they never got the chest to rise or anything. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's, it's foolishness. Um, so it's, it's something that I think everyone should have some real training at, whether it's on mannequins or cadavers or patients or in the OR or whatever. Um, and, you know, give, honest attention to doing it right and not saying, oh, I got it, but that really saying, you know, am I getting air in, <laughs> you know, is this working? Um, and if not, what can you do about it? Right. Yeah. I think the, the biggest mistakes I see with it are pushing the mask into the patient's face, uh, you know, instead of pulling the face up into the mask, holding the jaw on the soft tissue instead of the angle of the mandible, uh, because it is, it's, it's very hard to do this one handed. Uh, and then this, that's the, the last one is making the mistake of trying to be, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Macho is not the right word, I guess, but you know, the, the, I can do it by myself guy who's yeah. trying to do one handed masking while you work the bag. Um, and I think you're not doing anybody any favors with that. Yeah, it's really hard with one person, and it there's is. almost always more people here. Yeah. So this is what I teach most people who are not going to get a lot of opportunities to like become a master at this. Do it with two hands. Hold both sides of the mask. Usually your thumbs pointed down is, is better than trying to do like an EC thing with both sides. Yeah. And then you get a great seal. It's very easy to lift the jaw, and you have someone else squeeze the bag. Yeah. And I mean, that that is, I think, the lowest hanging fruit here. It works great. Um and yeah, I mean, yeah, you try to get good at one hand or whatever. The best place to learn that is probably the OR because anesthesia is really good with it and you get a lot of practice. They used yeah. to tell stories about making people just bag a patient for like a whole four-hour OR case and you know, get claw hands and stuff. But I mean, certainly you learn. But but yeah, I mean, that's – and I, other things I think are, can be helpful. If you can put a end tidal CO2 on there, uh, you know, waveform, then you know that you're getting breaths in. <laughs> Right. You know, you know, it doesn't need to be a tube. You can put it on anything. Of course, looking for chest rise. You know, if you're not getting that or entitled or something, you're not getting breasted, even if you think you are. Um, and then, yeah, two hands is, is a terrific help. Yeah. And especially if you're the person who's going to be doing the intubation. Uh, I see this a lot, too. The person who's at the head of the bed is going to be doing the intubation, is doing the masking as well. And they're by the time they've got the laryngoscope in their hands, their arms are so shaky from all the lactate buildup from using every ounce of strength to, to hold that mask in place uh, that now you've made your life a lot difficult, a lot more difficult when you're doing the intubation, because now you don't have the strength to manipulate the laryngoscope as well. So yeah, don't be a hero, ask for help. Um, Cause like you said, there's, it's a very rare instance in most hospitals. There's not enough people around to have someone squeeze the bag while you two hand mask or vice versa. Yeah, and uh, one more subtlety there is that um, probably I think 
really anyone you're going to put a mask on in the ICU, you should probably have a PEEP valve on it because yeah. most of these patients need some PEEP. And you're not going to get any PEEP if you don't have a complete seal with your mask. This idea of having like some leak and it's okay because you're squeezing like a liter out of the bag and half of it's getting in, that, that may be fine, but you're not going to get any PEEP because it's leaking. So right. if you actually want a seal, use two hands. Yeah. That, I mean, like, I mean, even if you're pretty good with one hand, you, you're, you're probably leaking some. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, so we've got our guy. He's We're adequately mask ventilating him. And now it's time to put him to sleep and intubate him. Let's talk about drugs. Well, hang on, hang on. Um, before we got there, maybe we should say, you know, we talked about the importance of, you know, knowing when you're going to get in over your head here. Wh- what is your approach to assessing someone to see if they're going to be a difficult airway, whether that it means for intubation or mask ventilation or anything else? Sure. Yeah. So I think the first thing to do, and this is something that's often overlooked, is look in their chart. Have they been intubated before? If so, read that note, Right. I have the luxury of practicing in a lot of um, with a lot of surgical patients, right? So even our neuro ICU is half neurosurgical, and surgical and thoracic ICUs are certainly surgical. So almost all my patients have been intubated at some point, and so they've been in the operating room. And anesthesia has written a little note, even if it's just a, a couple of comments, uh, but they'll note uh, what the grade was, the, the grade of the view, uh, their malampati score, what uh, size tube they used, what size blade they use, how many attempts it took, etc. So I have an idea going into it, um, you know, sort of what to expect. Well, this guy was a grade one. It took one attempt with a, you know, a Mac three and a, a seven and a half tube. Okay, great. Uh, but the other things you can look at are just look at their, um, look at their ability to open their mouth. Um, the, the thyromental distance, you know, from the, from the chin to their, um, uh, to their neck, uh, looking at that and their extension, how much freedom of extension do you have? Um, you know, what's their tongue? If you can get them to open their mouth, assess their malampati score, if they're with it enough that you can see sort of, can you, how much can you see when they open their mouth? Um, you know, these are all good assessments for, uh, how difficult is a patient going to be to intubate? Yeah, it, this is a tricky area, I think, because there's like a million ways, and a lot of this is from either anesthesia or emergency medicine literature, but like ways to assess airways. And I mean, there, like any time when there's a lot of ways to do something, it means none of them are like amazing. Right. <laughs> so I've sort of gone back and forth on what I use over time. I think what's for sure is you should do something. You know, you should be making some effort. Um, a lot of people, maybe all they'll do is look if the patient is like very obese and they'll say, oh, that looks hard. But I think that's like, really poorly predictive. There are a lot of very heavy patients who are pretty easy airways Absolutely. And, and vice versa. Um, so I think nowadays that stuff I will tend to do is um, some of the stuff that is helpful in like elective patients is not always possible in the ICU because patients are uh, like sedated or can't cooperate or wearing a mask or something. But if they can, I'll have them open their mouth. You can try to get a mouth potty, but a lot of the time they can't really cooperate. But at least you can get some idea for their mouth opening. Um, and if they can, if they can protrude their jaw, that's helpful to see how mobile that is. Often, maybe the best you could do is see if their jaw is really poorly mobile and get some idea for their dentition. Um, the, this like three, three, two thing with the fingers on the neck, I never had much luck with. That's probably a, a personal failure. Um, but I do like to 
try to just flex their neck and just see if their cervical spine moves and if it's not like fused or something like that. Cause mm-hmm. like I've been surprised by that and that will really ruin your day. Um, and other than that, I, I think a lot of it is just, uh, uh, physiologic things. So are they already very hypoxic or something that's going to make them unstable from that respect? And then, um, are they gonna be hard to mask? Do they have a big beard? Um, no teeth, things like that. Um, and then I'll always take a quick look at their neck. Just look at and palpate their um, their thyroid cartilage and just see if it's going to be a like totally unfeasible or not to, to do a cricorthyrotomy if this day really kind of goes from bad to worse. Yeah, I think those are all good assessments. And, and that's good. You mentioned cricothyrotomy. It's a good backup plan to have, right? Um, I teach the uh, Fundamentals of Critical Care Support course for a society of critical care medicine from time to time. Um, and I typically will do the airway management station. And one of the things in the curriculum, it says is talking about, um, you know, the difficult airway and cricothyr- making the decision to do a cricothyrotomy. And I always laugh because one of the things from the book, it, it says the hardest part of performing a cricothyrotomy is making the decision to perform a cricothyrotomy. Which I don't know that I totally agree with, but I can see that, you know, having to put yourself in that mindset of having to do a surgical airway uh, is probably a very difficult thing. So if you can sort of make that decision up front, here's what we're going to do and when we're going to do it. um, Great. Now, I don't know about you. I don't perform these. um, So I'm glad to have an attending in the room who who may. Um, It's always especially helpful to have a surgeon uh, in the room if you can. Um, some of these patients that we do, um, these ENT, uh, surgery patients, the head and neck cancer guys, um, if they have to be intubated, ENT often wants to be there, uh, whether they want to do the intubation themselves or not, they want to be around, uh, and sometimes for extubation as well, uh, in case things don't go well. And so it's always nice to have them around with their tools and gadgets, uh, in case we need to do a surgical airway. Well, yeah, that's the perfect example of someone that either from the history or from just looking at their neck, you want to have some idea ahead of time. You don't want to have in the back of your head that worst case will crack them and then you get to the neck and you realize there's like a giant tumor in their right. you know, mid, midline or something like that. Um, but yeah, I, I have not cracked anybody. Um, I do feel like I uh, could. I'm reasonably trained at it. I've done them on cadavers and animals and tubes and things like that. And, but I think that's a perfect microcosm of this whole discussion. Like if you have to do it, you probably have to do it. And there may not be anyone who could come do it. Who's better at it than you who can get there at the right time. Cause very likely at that point, unless you're being very proactive about it, you've got like, you know, potentially seconds. Uh, and certainly a lot of people will be thinking not just about the decision, but the aftermath, someone's going to be like, Hey, you did what now? And whereas if you don't do it and the patient, you know, Brady's down from hypoxia and codes or something, no one's going to be like, how come we didn't crike them? Um, right. So there's, there's that kind of that sort of worry, but yeah. Um, one could argue if you're going to be managing airways, uh, it's a, a good thing to have in your back pocket. Cause that's at the end of every airway algorithm, really by some means, a needle or a scalpel or something. There's more controversy here, but you know, picking a method and getting good at that. I don't think any of us are going to be good at multiple methods, but, and really, I mean, getting whatever training you can, whether it's just in your head or some kind of simulation or whatever, because none of us are going to be able to actually do enough of these to develop real, you know, experiential skill with it. It has to be through education. Right. Right. Yeah. So, 
we're going to proceed. Let's talk about drugs now. What's your sort of cocktail of choice um, for typical intubation? And let's say a urgent but non-emergent intubation in the ICU. Yeah. Um, So there was a time when I mostly... So first of all, I would generally always paralyze people. Um, you know, essentially do a, an RSI. Uh, there's an idea, I think, that if you're not the most comfortable with airways, and we've, you know, as we've talked about, you you avoid paralyzing and you just sedate them. But I think that's kind of the wrong way to go because I, I think there's good evidence that um, neuromuscular blockade will tend to improve your first pass success and really is you know optimizing your chances here. If you're saying, well, if if it doesn't work out, at least they're not paralyzed, maybe just don't go in there. You know, temporize them in some other way and get somebody else. Um, so I will used to use mostly succinylcholine for that. Um, I'm kind of coming around to this idea, which is popular on the internet of, of mostly using, um, something like rocuronium, um, longer acting a little bit lighter on the side effects. Um, I don't feel wildly strongly about it, but that's most often what I'll do. I'll do some rock and sedate with, um, whatever. I, I don't tend to use propofol. That's popular with anesthesia, but they're a little more comfortable with it, um, Pushing propofol is something not to, you know, be done lightly. Not that it's the end of the world, but um, I'll use Atomidate not infrequently. The only downside being, of course, there's a small risk of adrenal insufficiency, which, you know, we don't totally know how important it is, but um, it's certainly not going to last as long as something like rocuronium. So you need to remember to give them sedation after that. Um, ketamine is a fine choice, but most of the places I've worked, it's not usually readily available in the ICU. So it's not the best for like an emergent airway. Um but somewhere along those lines, of course, you can just do things like like benzos, but they're kind of unpredictable pharmacokinetically. Of course, some patients are so uptown that they don't need anything. So somewhere on that spectrum will usually fall. Yeah. So I, th- I think I would generally agree with you. Now, we do use propofol quite a bit. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm dealing with anesthesiologists, so um, they probably are more comfortable with that. And so consequently, we're more comfortable with it because we've done it a lot. Um, now, if someone's hypotensive or uh, hemodynamically unstable, we will shy away from propofol. Sometimes we'll use Atomidate. Um, Oftentimes, if they're unstable enough that we're not going to do propofol, then we usually tend to go with a combination of midazolam and fentanyl. Um, You know, just enough to to sort of get things done without becoming, um, without worsening the shock. Uh, as far as paralytics, I am a big rocuronium fan. Um, I have intubated a couple of times with succinylcholine. I have not been a fan any time I've used it. I've had, I've had bad experiences with it, and I've had mediocre experiences. Right? Now, it wasn't bad, but it wasn't great, and uh, and I've n- had more bad experiences with it than with rocuronium. Um, and I don't know how many. I've lost track of how many intubations I've done in my career. Um, hundreds, probably. And 98% of them with rocuronium or, or, you know, like you said, in somebody who's obtunded and, and coding, uh, none, nothing at all. Um, I think there is an argument for succinylcholine in that it wears off faster. It sets in faster. However, um, you know, I, when I was in training, I worked with a pulmonary intensivist who said, you know, the argument for succinylcholine being rapid on and rapid off 
is that if you can't get the airway, then they're no longer paralyzed. You don't have to stand there for 45 minutes or whatever and bag them. And she said, you know, that's not really a valid argument in the world we live in, right? It's a fine argument if you're intubating someone in the operating room for an elective gallbladder operation. You can't get the airway. You just let them wake up and you send them back to holding and say, well, I guess we're not doing this today or I'm going to find somebody else to do this. But she said, you know, the people we're intubating need to get intubated, right? There's, there's no other option, right? We don't intubate people lightly. And so if you can't get the patient intubated, then you don't have the luxury of saying, well, let them wake up and we'll find somebody else to try or we'll do it another day. And so her, you know, her argument was the benefit of succinylcholine being that it wears off faster is really not a benefit at all in the ICU. It's a downside because it just gives you, uh, you know, it gives you less time that the patient's paralyzed. Uh, and you can redose it, but then you increase your adverse effects of succinylcholine as yeah, well. Yeah, it gets weird once you're repeating yeah. it. I, I tend, I, I sort of agree with that. Um, I do think it's sometimes overstated. Like, yes, in ER, in the ICU, patients who are getting intubated generally need to be intubated. It's not like you can just cancel the case. But most of the time, they don't need to be intubated, like, right now. So, like, many times you, they could wait minutes, even hours. Um, so a lot of these people, like, in principle, you could paralyze them with sucks, find out it's not going to work out, mask them or something, let them wake up, and then, you know, let somebody else come in uh, 20 minutes later and make kind of a robust plan and have a lot of people involved or whatever and try again. Um, it, so there's kind of a spectrum here. I mean, I, I'm, so, I'm sort of here and there on that that argument. I think sometimes it's like, it's a, there's a little bit of hubris there. You're like, well, I, I might as well burn my bridges. It's gotta be done. <laughs> yeah. But like right now <laughs> they could probably like get hypoxic or something before like it had to be, they had to be innovated. If that makes sense. Sure. Yeah, I know. I would agree. I think that's uh, that's a, a fair point. I think my argument would be that in rare cases, do I find that there's a benefit to sucks over rock? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, one of many things to, to consider. Yeah. But I, I think that is why it comes in, especially again, talking about people who may not be, you know, a thousand percent comfortable with innovation and things looking for kind of, uh, you know, back doors and things. And I think that can be kind of plus or minus on being justified. Sure. Um, yeah. And, and I do think your point is valid, right? No matter what you choose, especially if you use rock, your paralytic is going to last longer than your sedative, um, for RSI, right? Whether you use fentanyl and midazolam or propofol or atomidate or even ketamine, you know, your, your paralytic is going to outlast that. So you need to have a plan for post induction sedation as well. Um, Right. I, Even if you're going light on that. Yeah. You know, yeah we talked absolutely. to Dale right. Needham recently. We talked to Carrie, like all these things where you try to keep patients, you know, minimally sedated on the ventilator and even somewhat awake. Even in those cases, this is the exception. You right. don't want to be, to be paralyzed and awake. So at least you may need to bolus something longer acting after you get in there or hang a drip for a very short time or something like that. Right. Now, other drugs that I'll have available um, before this is I will typically have a couple of syringes of phenylephrine uh, if we have that, because we have those handy pre-mixed, pre-mixed. 
Um, if a patient's on a presser already, then I'll often just draw up some push dose of whatever presser they're on. Um, and then w- whether I'm using it as part of my induction or not, I ha- usually like to have a vial of fentanyl around. Uh, and that, that helps with post-induction hypertension, um, yeah. which we sometimes see, uh, especially in, in neuro patients. Yeah, the, the, um, those little pre-filled things of phenylephrine are, are nice. And, of course, it's a classic thing, especially for anesthesia. You do, like, propofol plus that, and maybe it balances it out. Mm-hmm. That, I, I think, takes a, a little practice. They're handy to have, but I think what I've started to do a little more is just try to um, kind of preempt it. So, like, hang a presser drip. If they get hypotensive with innovation, they're probably going to stay hypotensive. Just have it running. And really, like, I don't mean, like, have it in your head. I mean, have it at the bedside attached to an IV, maybe even running at a very low rate if you don't need it right now, but maybe enough to kind of uh, boost the pressure ahead of time, really like get ahead of it so that when it happens, all you need to do is maybe turn your drip up or something. And you're not kind of chasing it around with pushes of things that are going to wear off anyway, and then you need a drip and so on. Um, That's kind of more recently where I've, I've been trying to go. And I think it kind of fits just a good critical care mentality more of not I mean, not being, quote, prepared in the sense that you have backup plans, but being prepared in the sense that you're preventing things. Yeah, and that sort of goes back to that concept of resuscitate before you intubate. Um, you know, you're, you're already dealing with, you're optimizing everything to get everything as, as good as it can be, right? So even if you have okay blood pressure, right, you wouldn't normally put them on a presser you know that I'm about to do some stuff that's probably going to drop their pressure. So let's just optimize things. Let's get everything in the best possible way it can get before we start. Yeah. And um, that depends on their physiology, of course, what you know about, let's say their heart or, um, you know, various other factors. And I mean, with that is, you know, how else can you optimize them? And I, and I think this is, this is like, like a lot of procedures, 90% preparation and that, you know, staying safe. So yeah, you know, support their pressure, have plans if they have a problem with their hemodynamics, have some fluid, even patients you're trying to keep dryish. Um, I would usually give them at least a little bit of fluid before, or at least have it there again, hooked up. Mm-hmm. And I think in general, it's a good practice to maybe just have the, an IV free flowing. Um, you're getting a little bit of volume that way. It'll carry your drugs and it confirms your IV is working if it's just dripping in because really, really bad day, which has happened to everyone is you get halfway through an RSI and you find out your IV is not working. They're like paralyzed, not sedated or something. And that's no fun. So that's nice. Um, having all of your equipment available, including the equipment for your various backup plans, which you've planned, described to the room, et cetera. And that means like at least right outside the room, I think, if you're planning on using it. Not like, I think I know where it is, or I don't know where it is, but it must be somewhere or something like that. Right. Um, positioning is a big one. Um, yeah. I put everyone in a, a sniffing position, so at least a little bit of um, kind of, it's so hard to describe always, but flex tension, some people call it, kind of like you're sniffing roses. Um, pat, usually I pat it with towels behind the head or something. Mm-hmm. And I also, and this is separate, I tend to elevate the head of the bed a little. I don't think there's any reason for almost anyone in our setting to be flat for an intubation. Anesthesia is used to that from the OR, but um, it just needlessly increases risks of things like aspiration. It makes the lungs not work as well. So everyone, a little bit of head up and a little bit of sniffing on top of that, I think is good. Um, yeah. I um, So of course I intubate a lot of people in the neuro ICU that have uh, ICP issues. And so putting someone flat or, or on their head makes that much worse. So I've gotten quite comfortable with intubating people at 
you know, 20 to 30 degrees uh, of head of, head of bed elevation. And I think it does make a difference, right? Like you said, I don't think there's no reason to not learn that. Yeah, I think in an ideal world, like people would be innovated, like bolt upright or standing or something. The yeah. only reason we don't is because it's hard for us to get in there. Right. Unless you're good at like coming from the front, like a tomahawk technique. Some of the <laughs> yeah. EMS guys are good at that, but that's a, that's a little advanced. Yeah. Uh, all right. So last question for you about intubation. And this is going to be a controversial one, I think. Video or DL? Oh, boy. Yeah. Um so I'm, I, I do both. I learned both, but I certainly learned more and still tend to do more DL. I'll usually use a Mac blade. I made a real effort to learn straight blades on cadavers and stuff, and it just never clicked. So I'm just <laughs> sticking with one thing. Um, but I mean, yes, there is controversy here, and legitimately, I think, because there are arguments uh, kind of like a lot of these things. Should you have anesthesia do it? Should you use, I don't know, ultrasound for that line or whatever else? That video, in many cases, improves your first pass success. Um, I guess my feeling is I, I would have a, a low threshold to turn to it. So in most cases, it'll be my first backup. Have it there, in the room even, ready to go. Um, and you certainly could use it first in many cases, with your backup being DL. Um, some people will have like VL with like a, a normal geometry blade. Then you have the best of both worlds. You can use it for a direct view and then just look at the screen if you need or vice versa. Um, I haven't come across a lot of those in my setting. Um, but there's that skill argument again. If you mostly do video, do you have the skill to do it direct if you need to? Um, I think there's a little of that in my case. It, uh, more is just that um, I've done more of it and I kind of feel like it's of the two skills and they are both skills. It's perhaps to some extent the more challenging one and therefore the one to spend a little more time on if you want to maintain both. But I could really see an argument that if you're going to learn one skill as a occasional intubator, it should be video. That's, that is, you can justify that, I think. So I think I would agree with you. I, so number one, I am a 90% DL person. Uh, that's how I learned. That's how I, I feel very comfortable with it. Um, I can count on, I don't know, not probably not one hand. Cause like I said, I've done a lot of these, um, but very few intubations where I've had to use VL now, not where I chose to, but where I've felt like I have to, right. I can't get it with the DL. I need the glide scope or I need the CMAC. Um, but, and, oh, and I used to argue that everyone should learn DL because, you know, several years ago, video laryngoscopy was not quite as widespread. And, you know, we would have times where, you know, you'd go to intubate somebody in the CTICU and they'd say, well, the, the glide scope is broken. I'll have to go to get another one from somewhere else. We don't have one on the floor. And so my argument was always, well, then you should learn to DL because there's always going to be a laryngoscope handy. And I think that situation has somewhat changed. Uh, now, again, I have the luxury of practicing in a thousand plus bed level one academic trauma center hospital. Uh, but I think that the ubiquity of video is such now that I don't think you're going to find a lot of times where you're in a place where you don't have video. Yeah, it's like a dwindling argument. Right. It's, it's not never. Right. But it's like, again, like the ultrasound thing for placing lines. Exactly. And I think that... Um, Oddly, for, for somebody like me who is very into tech and gadgets, 
Uh, it's very odd that I feel so passionately about DL, <laughs> I think. Uh, and I think it's just because I just like it. I mean, if I'm, if I'm really honest, I just, I just like it. Um, and I don't have a solid argument for why it's better. I just like it. And so for me, I don't feel like I need to, I certainly, I do video from time to time just to make sure that when I need video, I know how to do it and I feel comfortable with it. Um, but you know, for the, the average intubation, I'm just going to DL because that's what I like to do and I feel comfortable with it. But I think as someone who is in charge of training providers, I, I think I do probably need to do more research into this and make a solid argument for, should I be teaching DL to my learners or should we be focusing on video more? And I honestly don't know the answer to that. So, Yeah. And that's why it's hard because there's like psychological factors here too. There's like pride and, and whatever else. Right. Um, I don't. I don't know. I, I. I think there's a good case being made by some people that if you have a, a video scope with a normal blade, you can get a good combination because you can start with one way, you can combine them, you can use it for teaching. I do think that learning, you know, direct at some point helps you with the anatomy and kind of understanding how things work. Sometimes it's so easy with video, you can just kind of cram things in and not understand what's going on. Yeah. Um, but there's there's kind of a, a right and wrong way to go about that. So I think we're the, not the right people to answer this. People who do a lot more airways and teach a lot more airways, um, and a, a lot of this, I think, especially from emergency medicine, because they're right in the middle there. They do more than us, but it's not like anesthesia where they do so much that it's kind of like whatever. It's still not something they do all the time, um, but they have a good sense for how to teach it. So I, I guess I would direct people to kind of that sphere. <laughs> yeah. For me, I think the hardest thing about video is ha having to work in multiple axes or multiple planes, if that makes sense. Uh, my hands are working in one direction and my eyes are working in a different, because I'm looking at the screen, which is on the side. You know, I'm used to, with DL, my eyes are looking at my hands. And so um, it's funny because you do you know, a lot of Bronx. It, yeah. And which, right. And so I, I'm an enigma. Um, but I think a lot of that is just getting comfortable with the different technique, right? If I had learned on video, then I think it would be different. I think I would say, well, yeah, of course they're working in different planes. It's fine. Like you said, I do Bronx that way. Um, you know, and I do a lot of ultrasound guided procedures where I'm looking at the ultrasound screen, not my hands. So, um, yeah, so I think a lot of it is just how you learn, and uh, I guess I'm old enough now that I'm that I'm one of those guys that I this is how I learned it, and that's how I'm yeah. going to do it. You know, it's just dangerous. I mean, you don't want to yeah. be that person who you know, like obviously there's a better way, but you don't want to deal with it. But you know, you also want to acknowledge kind of the benefits of things that are not as not as new. So that's not a new problem. That's probably been for every technology. It's right. nice to be able to try things. Certainly, um, the the best thing I did was go to uh, Rich Levitan's Airway course in Baltimore, which he was doing forever. Uh, where they just they had a bunch of cadavers that are you know lightly embalmed, so they have kind of normal skin turgor, and you can just spend all day trying different things out and seeing what works for you and what they do in different anatomies and stuff. I, I just, just heard he is unfortunately ending the course, which, uh, really sucks, but you know, something along those lines is, is really helpful. Yeah. That's a shame. I have always wanted to do that course and just never have, but, uh, that's too bad. Uh, all right. Well, I think there's certainly, we could talk all day about other stuff related to uh, airway management and mechanical ventilation. Okay. 
But I think that is good for covering, uh, you know, basics of airway management for today. Uh, anything else that you would like to add? Um, no, I mean, like you said, there's a lot we could talk about. I guess we could always revisit it at some point or get some other perspectives. But I, I, I think the, the ultimate points are, you know, plan ahead for not just what you're going to do in a situation, although certainly that too, um, but, you know, what your approach is going to be and make sure that works for your situation. So your institution, your ICU, the people you work with and collaborate with and are supervised by um, in your level of training experience and see what's going to make sense for that. Um, and if it's not what you want, you know, see if you can change it, whether that means getting a different amount of training or going somewhere else or talking to some people. Um, but it's, it's just going to vary from person to person. And there's no, there's no one right answer. But you should have a plan. You shouldn't be there at 3 a.m., uh, with a sick patient and you're thinking, well, what do I do? Do I try to innovate him? I'm kind of so, so, uh, do I, who do I, do I call someone? I think they're going to be a wild, do, do I stick it in an element? Think all this stuff through ahead of time. And as long as you have a plan that makes sense, then that's fine. And the plan is going to be different for everyone. Absolutely. And I think, uh, the important thing about making those plans too, is assume that you may fail, right? Because I think part of the problem that we get into, we talked a little about ego is this, I have my plan a and it's hard to make a plan B because you have to admit that you might fail with plan a. Um, so just accept that you might and think that through. Yeah. And again, more so than a lot of other things, including other procedures we do, um, sort of quote failure here, uh, can be kind of higher stakes. If you go to put in a line or something and you can't get it, we don't always think through a lot of you know contingency plans there because you can sort of figure it out at the time. Um, but here, like once you kind of cross the Rubicon and you induce a patient and, and you're kind of managing their airway for them, that's not when you want to have to figure out what your your second and third and fourth plan is. Right. Right. Well, and what I always tell patients and families when we talk about this thing, you know, when patients get admitted to the ICU is of all the procedures we do in the ICU, this is probably the one that we take the most seriously. And I don't do it lightly. If I'm going to intubate you, it's because I truly believe there is no other course of action to take for you than to intubate you. Yeah. So you're right. The stakes are very high at that point unlike a lot of the things we do. And not to say that we just willy-nilly do chest tubes and thoracentesis and paracentesis and lines, but uh, you know, a lot of those are less high stakes in that if we can't get it done, we have the freedom to say, okay, fine, I'm, I'm stopping. Pull the drape off. I'm going to go get a cup of coffee, uh, call a friend, maybe get them to try. Maybe I'll come back in an hour you know, and, and have better luck kind of situation. All right. Well, uh, this has been a good discussion, and I think hopefully you guys have enjoyed it and have found it helpful. Thanks for joining us as always, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.